Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. I had the privilege of interviewing today's guest in Annapolis, Maryland. Major Lawrence Arano is a member of the U.S. Marine Corps and serves as the aide-de-camp to the Chief of Naval Operations. Major Serrano shares the tragic story of a Marine who took his own life while under her command. We candidly discuss mental health, how she led the more than 200 other Marines under her command through the loss, and how she managed herself through that difficult period of her life. Throughout this pandemic, so many of us in leadership positions have had to deal with unexpected loss and mental health challenges. This is why I wanted to talk with Major Serrano. Mental health issues are not to be ignored. Please seek professional help if you or someone close to you is having suicidal thoughts. In the United States, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline can be reached at 800-273-8255. Major Serrano, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks, Don. I'm happy to be here. Why don't we start with your background and your experience? How did you get interested in being a Marine? Oh, um... Well, I'm originally from San Francisco, California, which is not a big military city, but my family is very patriotic. And I think a lot of that stems from past service um, from past generations. So both my grandfathers were drafted into World War II into the Navy. One of them ended up returning and lived a healthy life, but the other one passed away, battled they take off. And my family has kind of continued that honoring of service over the decades. It's going to sound really weird, but I feel weirdly to my grandfather. Clearly, I never met him because he died Battle of Leite Golf 1983. <laughs> so I obviously never met him, but I feel so connected to him because of our shared service. And I heard stories about him growing up and my dad would always talk about his dad, you know, kind of idolized him as a war hero, American citizen to look up to. So as a child, I always thought that military service was very honorable and something you aspire to do and be. And that came from my family, not necessarily the city of San Francisco or school or, you know, other people around in my environment, really driven from my dad and my family. Um, so that inspired me when I was really young to want to be in the service. What was your first leadership position in the Marine Corps? In ROTC, you had leadership positions as midshipmen with your other uh, midshipmen. In my sophomore year, I was a squad leader. <laughs> so I uh, led like 12 other midshipmen, and I thought that was really fun as well. Men and women? Men and women in my ROTC unit. So I was a squad leader then, and then worked my way up to where my senior year of college, when you're a first-class midshipman, what they call you, I became the battalion commander of my ROTC unit. We nicknamed it Batcom. That was so cool. <laughs> so I was a battalion commander my senior year of college. And that was a critical billet in my development because I built a really strong, good relationship with the colonel who was the professional military, professor of military science at the UPenn NROTC unit there. And as the battalion commander for the midshipmen, I used to meet weekly with the colonel so one-on-one -on -one leadership every Monday for an hour with, you know, me as a senior in college and him as an 06 full bird colonel in the Marine Corps. And we would just sit and he would ask me what my plan of the week was for the battalion and, you know, great ideas I had for the whole semester. And just a, a 
hour of mentorship one-on-one. And yeah, and that's the only midshipman position that got that kind of access to the colonel and federated access. And by the a month or two into my time as battalion commander, I became more comfortable in my role and felt okay just dropping by the front office, talking to the XO, who 05 Navy commander, talking to the 06 colonel. And like, we built trust with each other that, you know, they, they trusted me to lead the battalion in good ways. And, you know, likewise, I trusted their mentorship and their advice um, in how to lead the battalion. So that was before I actually entered true active duty and took my commission. But those were really good trial runs in how to be a leader. So take us from ROTC to becoming a major. And what, what, are, the, what are the steps that you've taken, including you, you spend time in Iraq, and I'm assuming you've been deployed in different locations around the, the world. I took a year-long gap. This is very important. I took a year-long gap between ROTC, graduating college in 2008, and actually showing up to the basic school a year later. And in that year, I went to Jordan, and I did an Arabic immersion program and lived with an Arab family, learning Arabic and learning all about Middle Eastern studies, um, and then showed up to the basic school. So I was a year behind all of my peers that I had gone through ROTC with. So I knew nobody showing up at uh, TBS. Went to the basic school. I got assigned human intelligence as my MOS. Um, MOS is what? uh, Military occupational specialty. That's actually the first, within the first year, year and a half that they opened that specialty up to women. So that was its own unique challenge in and of itself, being one of the first women to go through that MOS. I wasn't the first, but I was one of the first kind of group that went through and then got assigned to Okinawa, Japan as my first duty station after counterintelligence, human intelligence school. I mean, I was out at 3rd Intelligence Battalion in counterintel, human intel company. And my first assignment was in Korea. And I got shot up to Korea for about seven months doing some intel stuff. I can't really get into I'm up in Korea. And that's when I was an OIC officer in charge of a human debt. So I had a couple of sergeants that worked on the team with me. So it was me and a small team up there in Korea. Did that, came back to 3rd Intel Battalion in Okinawa. And then the, the operational tempo being stationed in the Pacific is so high that we did a lot of exercise. So I went to um, Thailand for three-ish months with another team doing counter intel stuff. I went to Yuma for training for two months uh, to be a weapons and tactics instructor. And did a lot of other small courses, a lot of other exercises on the island of Okinawa. High, high op tempo. But in that time is when I met my husband, who was also out there in Japan. It was the, I loved being out there so much that it actually extended my it was supposed to be a two-year assignment to Japan. I ended up doing four years out there. Of those four years, a full 12 months were spent doing, it's called an individual augmentation deployment to Iraq. So again, I went to Jordan after college and learned Arabic. So I was actually pretty upset that I got stationed in Japan instead of one of the other two Marine Expeditionary Forces that were deploying people to the Middle East because I wanted to use my language and culture skills and not necessarily go to Korea. But I was able to convince the battalion XO to give me up to do an individual augmentation to Iraq. It was only supposed to be six months. Um, But when I got there, they were like, wait a minute, you are counter intel female 
with it, with the nose Arabic, with like Middle Eastern studies knowledge, like, yeah, we're going to extend you for an extra six months and put you in the defense attache office doing some cool intel stuff. So ended up doubling my deployment out there and doing some of the coolest things that you could ever imagine to do on an operational deployment. Um, spent a lot of time in northern Iraq and Erbil. Spent a lot of time doing key leader engagements, even with Prime Minister, Prime Minister Maliki. Just being in the room and speaking Arabic and doing intel things out there was really cool and being operationally relevant. So tell us what you're doing today, because you have a very interesting job that I don't understand. <laughs> oh, so yes, I'm an intel officer in the Marine Corps, but I got yanked out of that for a year and a half to be the aide to the chief of naval operations. Um, Admiral Gilday. So he is the head of the entire United States Navy. And so I am his aide. I work closely with him, the rest of his personal staff, with the other heads of the Department of Navy. And it is an incredible, eye-opening job. I am humbled to be here. It's such a privilege to see behind the scenes of the Navy. I've gained a tremendous appreciation for the Navy as a service and the leadership of the Navy and the Department of the Navy, to include the Secretary of the Navy and the Commandant of the Marine Corps, who I see regularly. And I, I think one of the things that I'm going to walk away from this 18 months in this unique job with is just wholehearted trust and appreciation for the senior leaders of the Department of the Navy. But this year and a half, getting to watch the senior leaders of our naval services has reignited my appreciation for what good leadership is, for how a good leader with good ideas, good initiatives can change the lives of so many people in a positive way. And I trust our leaders. And I trust that they are putting the right people in place to follow them when they retire or move on in years to come. So I trust that the organizations and the institution is going in a right in the right direction. So I am just so privileged. That's amazing because a lot of times it's easy to be critical of mm -hmm. senior leaders yeah. because well, why did they make this decision or you know, that doesn't make sense for me in my position. And it's it's really nice to hear you say that. It sounds like you have a great deal of empathy for them and the pressure that they're under and the challenges of their jobs. There's a reason that our current CNO, our current commandant, the ACMAC, the, the assistant commandant, the, um, the vice CNO, all of them are in the positions that they're in because they're incredible leaders, incredible humans, and driving our services in the right direction. Leading the entire United States Navy is one of the most difficult jobs anybody could do, any American citizen. And Admiral Gilday is one of the most selfless, hardworking, smart, you know, just greatest human being we have in this nation. He is a true treasure to our nation. And I am so privileged to have watched him this last year and change and how he approaches every situation and thought that he puts behind every decision that he makes. And I will be a better leader, a better human, a better American citizen for having been in his presence and watched how he 
leads our Navy. So, Who is the best leader you've ever had? And what did that individual possess? And you don't have to name names because I think that's unfair. So, so could you just talk about the attributes of the best leader you've ever served under or worked with? Let's see. People who are other great leaders, it's not about them. It's about the team. It's about the organization. It's about giving credit away. It's not about the title that they have in front of their name or the rank they have in front of their name. As soon as people think that it's about that rank, that they're going to be respected because they have a star on their collar or because the title in front of their name is something fancy, you know, automatically you've lost most of the people that work for you. Um, so check that ego at the door and realize that that title in front of your name comes with a heavy responsibility and you should use that rank and use that title for good. This has been an incredibly strange past two years for the whole world. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about leading through loss is because many of us have lost and we didn't think we were going to. So maybe we lost somebody on our team or we lost somebody in in our family um, through the pandemic that we didn't expect to have happen. And so I wanted to to just ask you to share the story that you have written about and, and talked about in the past. A uh, member of your team passed away and, and how you, you, so if you could just talk about what the circumstances were, and then we'll talk about how you led your team and yourself through that loss. Definitely. Um, before I talk about that story, I definitely want to kind of highlight that I have never been in a leadership position in combat to where we lost somebody. And I was a company commander when I lost somebody to suicide, but I've not lost somebody in combat. And I don't want to do any discredit to any of those leaders or any of those other Marines, soldiers, airmen, whoever, who've lost friends, lost people in a combat situation. Um, I recognize that there are other people out there and other leaders who have suffered much more tremendous loss than, than I have. Um, and so they're in my thoughts and in my prayers. And, you know, I don't want this one story I'm going to share about one loss to outweigh any of those leaders who've lost dozens more than me or have suffered more tremendously or for anybody who's dealt with a more immense tragedy. So I do think about that. Anyway, um, yeah, so I was a company commander um, at the National Security Agency, NSA, um, for the Marine Cryptolog Support Baton we have there. And that year as a company commander was one of the most challenging and most rewarding and incredible years of my life um, for all the leadership reasons that everybody talks about. And one of the things that I didn't realize was going to be such a huge part of my time in leadership was dealing with mental health to include suicide. So a few months into my time as a company commander, I had a Marine very, very close to actually committing suicide. This Marine um, was on life support for several days and ended up pulling through. Um, I don't want to talk too much about the details of that one 
Marina is still with us today. And I'm so thankful that this Marina is here. But then a couple months later, in March of 2020, March 4th, um, is when it actually happened. When one of my Marines actually committed suicide. I think this is the first time I'm actually telling the full story. So I may be a little bit all over the place. This is not like a rehearsed story. But I will share it um, in the best of memory that I have. So this day, March 4th, 2020, I think is it's definitely the worst day of my entire career and probably the worst day of my entire life. I can't think of anything worse. And I failed in so many ways and lost in so many ways in a single 24-hour period. The day began with, I had a doctor's appointment at Walter Reed um, that morning. And one of the things that I think leaders sometimes are bad at is taking care of themselves. Um, You're so busy serving others and and giving your time away that you forget to take care of yourself. And I definitely fell into that category. So I had a slew of medical appointments that I'd always pushed off. And um, this day, I was finally getting around to going to a medical appointment at Walter Reed that morning. And I'm in this medical appointment and I'm in this dark room getting an ultrasound done on my legs because I apparently have. Uh, vascular insufficiency where I spend too much time on my feet and running around where my veins don't close all the way, the valves in the veins. So they're doing all this work on my legs. And the doctor's kind of chastising me for not taking care of my body. And I should be putting my feet up more and, you know, all these other things I should be doing. And meanwhile, my phone is in my pocket and start vibrating and vibrating and vibrating. It won't stop. It won't go off. And so I, I, I see that it's my company. Um, XO calling me over and over and over. And I can't answer because I'm laying on this table with this ultrasound thing going on. Finally, he sends me a text and I look at it and it says, Hey, this, our Marine, I'm not going to say his name, you know, Lance Corporal committed suicide. That's all this text said. I look at it and you ever heard those moments where like your whole body just kind of gets like a chill? where like it's an uncontrollable, like physical reaction, chill going over your body. It's just weird that I happened to be in an ultrasound at that time because I saw the computer thing spike at that moment too, because my blood literally pumped in a different um, beat than it had been. And the doctor kind of looked at me funny. And I thought immediately like something has to be wrong. This is not like, this is not a funny joke. Like, what is this? And um, the next few moments were kind of a blur. I started silently crying on the um, table there as I was getting the ultrasound done. Get up, leave. You know, doctors chastising me for follow-on appointments, all this stuff I need to do. And I just kind of race out of there and start calling my exo over and over and over. What's going on? What's going on? What's going on? Race back to Fort Meade, get there, realize it's not a joke that this Lance Corporal had hung himself with his dress blues belt in our company barracks and another Marine found him. Um, what do you do? (sighs) You know, staying calm in a moment like that is key as a leader, understanding when to remain calm and how to approach these situations is very important. And I'm glad that I had had a brush of experience with this a few months earlier with another Marine who had 
come close to taking their life, which enabled me to be a little bit more calm in this moment and kind of already did like a drill. But even still on the inside, I'm, you know, panicking and just heartbroken, just just so confused. Why? Um, So that whole day is a little bit of a blur, but what we did is we ended up um, telling everybody to get out of the barracks. You know, we cordoned off the barracks. We called the investigative service, NCIS, to come and they had to come to their investigation, you know, take the body away and stuff. And this actually kind of um, bothered me that it took them hours and hours and hours and hours to get the body out of my barracks. In the meantime, we passed to the whole company, like, hey, you cannot go back to the barracks. So it was a Wednesday, which is not a day we typically have a company formation, um, but this warranted a company formation. So I passed the word through my leadership that, hey, the entire company has to meet at company headquarters at noon that day. Um, very important, you know. And so word spreads like wildfire throughout my company. And in those few hours between, you know, passing that word and when we actually met with the company, I just I had a hard time figuring out what I should and shouldn't say. How do you articulate to 229 Marines that your 230th is no longer there. Um, in the meantime, you actually have to, you know, deal with the, the crisis, right? Thankfully, I had a really good leadership team with me. I'm, I had a very strong relationship with our company XO captain. He's a phenomenal human being, phenomenal leader as well. Um, he, myself, our senior enlisted leader, Mass Sergeant, who's also incredible, and our company guns, and those of us in the leadership head shed got together and we're like, what do we do? So we called the chaplain on base to come and be present for our company formation at noon. We called the mental health um, providers there on base to also come and do an open session with us. Um, We called over to the bowling alley who was closed that day um, at that time, but we asked them if they could open up one of their rooms over there to just be like a safe space and a place for our Marines to go and gather later that day until the barracks were open again. And I wanted people to be together. Um, Being a company commander at NSA was challenging because our Marines were spread all over the base and all over different shops. Um, So they didn't all work together in one unit. They were in individual shops. So I knew that after passing this word that we just lost one of our teammates, they shouldn't be going back to their shops with other service members and civilians who they weren't close with, you know, or weren't in the company, like just, you know, telling them the news of somebody passing away and then saying, Hey, now go back to work is not how you should approach that situation. So we had the bowling alley set up for people to go the rest of the day, um, and just be together. So noon came fast. And before I knew it, all of my Marines were huddled in a school circle around me right in front of my company spaces and just trying to hold it together, show authenticity without showing like that I can't handle the situation was definitely a fine line to walk. Um, Cause so much of me wanted to cry. Um, so much of me just wanted to, you know, pretend this wasn't happening, but also so much of me was actually glad that I was actually there to be the one to 
address the situation and hopefully provide some kind of leadership or solace to the Marines in this situation. So I stood up there in front of all those Marines, my battalion commander came, the you know battalion senior leadership came and we're all part of this, this announcement, you know, that we had lost one of our Marines and right in front of me, one of my corporals was just sobbing her eyes out, you know, trying not to look at her because it trigger my tears as well. You can see some of the other Marines that were close to the one that committed suicide were just white. They were, felt unreal. I know that the OIC, there was a sergeant who was in charge of the Lance Corporal who committed suicide. He and I were close. And I looked at him and he just had this look of like guilt, personal guilt. And I stared at him right in the eyes and said, this is none of our fault. This is not anybody's fault here, period. Um, and he looked at me and he kind of gave me a nod. We've had many chats since then. Um, and then, you know, told them that they, we needed to band together, that this is not a time to go hide in their room playing World of Warcraft and push it away, that everybody was going to groove in a different way. And that's okay. Um, and so reinforcing that it wasn't anybody's fault too was hard. So the Marine that committed suicide was really good friends with pretty much everybody. This is also one of the parts that boggles my mind is that there were no red flags. There was no indicator whatsoever. He had just come back from a three-week TAD to Japan a couple of weeks before, and he came back full of spunk and excitement, telling me all about the different types of sushi he had just eaten, showing me pictures of everything under the sun. He'd actually given me a picture of him um, standing by Mount Fuji in Japan, you know, looking like he was holding up the mountain and and smiling big and wide. And that picture was actually taped to the wall in our company coffee mess at that time. And I just, I had no idea how somebody could be so happy on the outside and fool everybody and take his life. You know, so many of my others that were on, you know, force preservation council, ones that we were worried about, we knew their problems. We knew their triggers. They were going through divorces or, you know, horrible life situations or, you know, we would, they were ones that we watched out for, but this Lance Corporal was none of those. The Marine Corps from the outside seems like an extraordinarily tough, masculine organization. So I'll just say that I would imagine that having conversations about mental health are not on the top of most Marines list of things to have discussions. But if there was ever a time to have these discussions, it would be after an event like this. How did you approach that? It's actually exacerbated in our occupational specialty of intelligence because people think that seeking mental health is going to have an adverse effect on your top secret security clearance. Um, and so like mental health is definitely something that we struggle with as a service, but particularly my community within the service. So one of the things I did as, as the company commander on the back end of the suicide was like set the conditions and set the environment for people to seek mental health if needed. So I built a relationship with the mental health caregivers on our base and um, they set up like standing hours for anybody to be able to go and walk in and talk to them at any time. And a lot of my Marines actually used it. We actually did like a group therapy session 
a few times where, you know, as a platoon or as a group of friends or groups, some of our Marines went together to kind of talk about their sadness and grief. Um, so that mental health piece was huge. One of the other Marines um, in my company who was not handling the death very well um, actually ended up having to be brought to inpatient care for mental health for also having suicide ideations on the back end of this. And um, I was, I was sad to see it happen, but I'm also proud that this Marine felt comfortable calling the platoon sergeant at the time of breakdown and saying, I'm thinking of suicide myself. You know, I need some help. And immediately the, the platoon sergeant, it was an evening time, dropped everything, you know, left his wife and kids at home in the middle of dinner time, picked up everything, ran over to our company barracks to intervene with this Marine and um, bring this Marine to the inpatient mental health care facility at Walter Reed. And this was only a few weeks after the suicide. Um, so in the wake of the actual suicide, there was kind of a waterfall of suicide ideations on the back end. And then the COVID situation prevented us from one, going to the funeral, but then two, having a full-on um, memorial service, proper memorial service on Fort Meade. So we weren't allowed to use the chaplain or the, the the chapel because of the numbers of people that we wanted to have in it and they'd closed it for COVID. So we ended up having to have the memorial for our Marine in this just really cold auditorium, you know, with the fluorescent lights and the ceiling and nothing really on the walls. This like huge auditorium, but we can only have 10 people in the auditorium at any given time. Um, so we had a group of Marines volunteer to put together the the a memorial service and they did an absolutely incredible job where you walked into this auditorium and there was you know the boots with the rifle right in the middle of the auditorium and then on one side there was a table with a bunch of pictures of our marine and they had gotten dog tags um, made with you know picture on it and then his date of birth and date of death on it um on the other side there was another table where people could write stories of that Marine that were then compiled into a book to send back to the family. And then on the huge big screen um, in the auditorium on repeat, they played the actual funeral, which included the video of our Marine coming off of the aircraft in the casket draped in the American flag. And then the motorcade carrying him back to the um, wake and then to the actual um, funeral and burial service. And so that played over and over on repeat um, on the big screen. So people felt like they could be a part of the funeral. Um, and then you could only have the 10 Marines in the auditorium at any time. So people lined up all around the auditorium all day long. We opened at, you know, 9 a.m. and kept it open as late as people were still showing up. And all day long, Marines from throughout the company came and you know one of them sat in a chair for hours just watching the funeral on repeat over and over and over and again covid in the beginning social distancing is a thing and so some of my marines just needed a hug we weren't allowed to hug and so yeah, right so they but they'd hug and then they'd look back and look at me and I turned it you know I'm not going to turn that off so you know it was it was a weird time. What, what's the process for trying to discover suicide ideation? 
within your team now? I mean, I'm assuming it hasn't changed, but I guess what I'm trying to get at is some helpful advice for other leaders who may see some signs, but may not have the, the courage or the willingness to have the conversation. So first you have to have the courage in the conversation. That's part of being a leader. Even if you don't want to, you have to. Um, one of the things that helped me in this time was how many peers and mentors around me reached out to me and told me their stories of the time they lost somebody in their, you know, company, squad, battalion, whatever. And so it made me know, feel like, hey, this is not a unique situation. This is actually a semi-common situation that leaders have to deal with and may not always talk about or, you know, that there's not really a manual on how to deal with this. Every situation is different. Um, so I think the main thing is not hiding it, being open communication, talking about mental health and not attaching a stigma to it, encouraging people to use the resources available to them. And then again, in my MOS, talking about how it's not going to have adverse effects on your security clearance, even if people don't believe you, but it's true. You know, you're not going to lose your top secret clearance because you had a bad mental health day. Um, so just setting those conditions where people feel comfortable using those resources. And part of it just comes down to talking about it, um, being transparent about these issues and, and, you know, sharing the stories is important. Yeah. I, th I think that's great advice. And it's, it's not just the military, right? We, we do know that there's a higher likelihood that if you're in the military, you, you may have these ideations and you may even act on it. You know, we hear about that quite frequently in the news, mm -hmm. but it, nobody's impervious to these things. No. And I think it, you'd be hard pressed to find a senior leader that hasn't dealt with suicide. And one of the things that helped me in this situation what were those senior leaders that reached out to me. And one of them was actually Master Gun Stalker, who you've had here on this show. Um, he was the senior enlisted leader to NSA at that time. So he had thousands and thousands and thousands of service members from all service and civilians um, that he looked out for in that senior enlisted role. But he knew about the suicide in my company. And about three weeks or so after the suicide, he called me up to his office. And I'd actually never been up to the front office of NSA before where General Nakasone and, um, and Master Gun Stalker uh, worked. Um, and I was, I initially didn't know why he was calling me to come up and have a meeting. Like, oh my gosh, like, what am I getting called up to the senior person for? Um, and I went up there and I s sat in his room and came in and he just sat down across from me and he just looked at me and he just said, how are you, ma'am? And I was like, oh yeah, everything's good. You know, just start chatting. Everything's fine. You know? And he goes, no, 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 stop. How are you? How is Lauren Serrano doing? And I just kind of looked at him and went, holy shit. He sees me. He sees that I am still struggling, trying to wrap my head around what just happened. And he's been here before. He's a senior leader and he knows what's happening. And he knows that me as a leader also needs to be checked in on. It's not just those Marines that need somebody to check on. And then somebody needs to check in on the leader. I go back to how... March 4th was the worst day of my life. I didn't actually finish the full story. So 
after I had dealt with a personal failure in the morning about not taking care of myself medically and then dealt with having a suicide in my company all day long, I got home that night and just completely mentally, physically, everything exhausted. And I walked in the door of my house and I saw my son, my four-year-old, and he was bright red. And I looked at him and, AJ, are you okay? What's going on? He seemed lethargic. And, you know, I took him in the kitchen, turned the lights on and, and examined him. And he had like little like blisters all over his body. He had a red scaly tongue and like something was wrong. And so I turned around and screamed at my husband, like, what is going on with AJ? He's clearly sick. What's happening? And my husband's like, oh, yes, it's a cold. And it'll be Whatever. I lost it on my husband, screamed at him, threw AJ in the car and ran to the ER and spent all night long in the ER with my four-year-old son who was diagnosed with scarlet fever, which is something you get when you don't treat strep throat in time. And so the doctor's chastising me for not, you know, being a good enough parent, essentially, for catching this sickness before it turned into scarlet fever. So in one day, I failed on so many levels. I failed taking care of myself you know, medically, I failed in the fact that I lost a Marine in my company. And then I failed as a parent taking care of my son. And then a week later, COVID hit the nation and my entire company was struggling with what does that mean? Trying to get over the suicide, but also like panicking about this pandemic that's happening and, you know, so uncertain about what's going on that, you know, there were so many stressors all within a very tight period of time that I too was having a hard time, like just dealing with it all. So to have Master Gun Stalker sit across from me and ask me how I'm doing was very important. How did you take care of yourself? What did you do with all of these things going on that, you know, your personal health issues, so, your son is sick, somebody commits suicide under your command. And then a pandemic. Yeah. Have you dealt with it yet? The person who provides me with my mental health like therapy from that suicide and from the pandemic and all that issue is actually my Marine's dad. Sounds weird, right? It's been over a year. year. Wow, God, it's about to be two, two, years. two years. And next week, it'll next, be week? Two, next week, it'll be two years since the suicide. I still text and call my Marine's dad. Um, he and I became really close after the suicide, even though I didn't actually meet him till months later. So I was not able to go to the funeral, but I would stay in contact with, with the family. And then in November of 2020, I went um, out to California for some training and for some you know intel stuff. And while I was there, I spent an extra day and drove up to LA to meet this Lance Corporal's family. And just driving up there, I was excited, terrified, unsure what to expect, all of that. But it, it was the closure that I needed, the closure that his family needed, therapy for both of us to get together and just remember our Marine. And so I remember pulling up in the car right outside their little house in LA. And I knew that that was his dad standing on the street corner waiting for me fitting image of my Marine, just slightly older, got out of the car and we looked at each other and we just hugged. And he brought me inside their house right 
as you walk in the front doors, they're ofrenda, you know, they're a Spanish family and they just celebrated Dios de los Muertos. And so the ofrenda was right there, right in the center of the ofrenda is this huge picture of my Marine with angel wings on. And we just sat in the house and looked through um, photo, old photo albums, chatted about his childhood. We went back to his bedroom, his childhood bedroom. His dad still didn't have the the strength to clean it out yet. And so all over the bedroom were pictures of my Marines Marine Corps career stuff that like our company had given him, pictures of other Marines in my company that were on the walls that he'd sent back to his dad. And, you know, I just stood there in my Marines childhood room, just imagine him as a kid growing up in this house. We went out to the backyard and his dad showed me the area where he learned to ride a bike and, you know, where they used to have barbecues all the time. And we just for hours, just shared stories about this Marine. That day that I spent with his dad was the best therapy that I could have asked for. And I don't want to say there's other times I haven't, you know, melted. I will say in that, that back in March, 2020, when all of those things were compounding at once and all of those, you know, stressors were kind of coming to a head for me. There was one evening I remember at home I hadn't actually cried. It had been like, you know, a week or two since the suicide and I hadn't actually cried yet. You know, that once I got my kids in bed one night, I just stood in the kitchen and that's when it happened. When I just, it was late at night and I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Yeah. I remember just sitting on the floor, my kitchen, just kind of resting my head against the cabinet and just crying. And allowed myself that time. I didn't get mad at myself for crying. You know, I did it alone by myself. It just needed to happen. It was something that I just needed to do. It was a natural reaction to kind of some of the things that were happening. And as a leader, you have to allow yourself that space to have natural reactions and to respond appropriately in the time and space necessary. Major Serrano, thank you for being a great leader. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. In our next episode, I talk with Tom Hartman. Tom is an author, political commentator, and host of the daily radio show, The Tom Hartman Program. We discuss his latest book, The History of Big Brother in America. Tom and I talk about the erosion of privacy and why that threatens innovation, national security, and the security of our companies. We also discuss what corporate leaders need to do to ensure the privacy of their employees and what leaders in government can do to guarantee the privacy of their citizens. That episode will be released May 3rd, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.